Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. We believe all survivors should have access to justice and resources to help them heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. Join us as we talk with survivors and various community members who are taking action to normalize the conversation around sexual abuse in the pursuit of justice and healing. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Welcome to Support for Survivors. Today, we are absolutely thrilled to welcome Joelle Kastix to our show. I'm very, very excited about this episode. Joelle is a journalist and leading global expert, author, and keynote speaker for survivors of child sexual assault and institutional cover-up. I have seen and heard Joelle speak multiple times. I was blessed to be on a panel with her recently, and she's just amazing. So welcome, Joelle. We are so very happy to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. It's super cool. I'm so, so, so excited. Let's launch right into it. Why don't you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, like where you're from, you know, basic background of information, and then we can kind of get into what it is you do and why you do it. Well, if you were to ask my neighbors, I'm just a mom who lives in Southern California. I'm married because I love Southern California. And I have a 16 year old son and a husband whose age I won't disclose. (laughs) And I have spent, um, and this is where I was born and raised. I, I planned my life around getting out of Southern California and I never seemed to have been able to succeed in doing that. So I'm still here and I've spent the past 20 years being an advocate for adult survivors of child sexual abuse. And it was not the plan. I was a PR and marketing executive. I was doing uh, high-tech outreach for Hewlett-Packard and other companies. And some things came up and I had to address things in my own past. And I realized that the best life that I could lead would be to give a voice to people who had been abused and give a voice to the 16, 15-year-old Joelle who was abused and who never had anyone speak up for her. I certainly, it's a theme that we encounter a lot with survivors who come on the show. It's like, it gets to a point where you maybe don't even know that it, it was having the effect on you that it did. And then once that light bulb goes off, it's time to make some changes and some act. And you really, you sure did. Like you dedicated your entire life to it. It sounds like. Well, so let me rewind and tell you a little bit about, you know, where I came from and how I came to my big, big decision. Um, So born and raised in Southern California and probably like most of the survivors that you deal with, I came from a very vulnerable situation. Um, My mother was an alcoholic. My dad was in denial. And so I was already pretty vulnerable and had spent some time in a psychiatric institution because I had suicidal ideations. And so, but I had a, a good side of my life. And that good side was the fact that I went to this high school that I loved and I was a singer. I was a classical singer and I was being you know, brought up through the system to hopefully go to a conservatory or a music school or something like that. And that was, that was my love. And so um, beginning of my junior year, we got a new teacher and he was all the things that you want in a teacher. He was bright and charismatic and charming. He was young. He was super smart. He really knew how to relate to kids. (laughs) Well, (laughs) that was the problem because he was also a predator. And the process of grooming happened 
very, very quickly because he was, he was an expert. He, uh, while he was young and while this was his first teaching position, he started grooming three or four girls at the same time he was grooming me. So he was already getting a full stable of, of girls that he could exploit and have through his little predatory system. Do you know at the time that he started grooming you, did he know about your background, that things that were going on at home and he did. In fact, the first time we met, I was in his office and he specifically said, Oh, Jamal, I'm so glad to finally meet you. I've heard all about you. The previous choir director, who was this sweet Dominican priest (laughs) told me about your struggles. And, and I want you to know that, you know, my dad was an alcoholic and no one understands like I do. So you can come to me anytime. Your secrets are safe with me. Yeah. He's good. Yeah. So, and of course, you know, like all young vulnerable survivors, I was like, Oh, of a mentor and he understands me. Yeah. And I wanted an adult in my life who was stable and strong and could teach me and mentor me and help me. But what I didn't want was to be sexually abused. Well, unfortunately I didn't have that choice. And so the grooming started pretty quickly because it's so, this is the eighties. So I'm 52. Now the abuse started in 1986 when I was 15. And because we were a I was a part of the elite traveling choir. We had late night practices. It was very easy to get me alone. It was very easy to have an excuse to get me to come into his office. It was very easy to, to cultivate that one-on-one time. And it was also very easy to do that with a bunch of girls at the same time. So the abuse, the actual sexual abuse started within a few months and it was extraordinarily confusing because And this is a dynamic that I don't talk about it a lot because you are in the, you know, the movement, you get it, you know, 15 year old vulnerable girls want to be loved. They sure do. And it, it was, you know, you, you think, oh, one day I'll have a boyfriend, but you're like, and and then the back of your head, like, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And, and this hurts. But like when I'm done, I don't have any real injuries. Nothing's broken. I don't understand. And then he tells me this is how it's supposed to be. And it's like dipping, He, you know, grooming is like dipping your toe in the water. So by the time I was drowning, I didn't even know that I was wet. And so I finally, you know, one day I'm like, gosh, you know, something's kind of weird. So I went to a vice principal at the school who had been very, very kind to me when I was in the psychiatric facility. Her kid was in my class. I'm like, I can talk to her. So I went and I said, Hey, you know, something kind of weird is going on, you know, in that roundabout way that kids try to tell you something and it takes three hours to get it out of them. And she went straight. She's like, Oh, he already told me, Joelle, this is what it's like to be in love. And I was, and it's like the walls just come crashing down the oxygen sucks out of the room. And then you're like, Oh, this is, this is what life is going to be like from now on. This is what I have to. And, and then it's like, he told her, I was told not to say anything. Why is he? I don't understand. And then she goes a step further and she goes, and you know, you got to be careful. You don't want to tell anyone because you could end up back in that psychiatric hospital for getting involved in this. So then, well, that's, that guaranteed my silence instantly. No doubt. God, my gosh. Yeah. So the abuse took place over a period of two years from 15 to 17. So by the time I graduated from high school, I was pregnant. 
I had a sexually transmitted disease. All my peers knew, which of course, cause you know, teenagers, they, they figure out everything. Oh yeah. And they were very upset because he went on to abuse another friend of mine and I became the bad guy. I was the one who turned him into a predator. I was the one who seduced him. I was the one who told him. So I, you know, the grooming is already isolating. And so now I have an entire peer group blaming me. And this, my peer group was like my, my solace. And it was like, I was utterly and totally alone. Like you're somehow some Jezebel who has turned this grown ass man into a predator. It's all on 17 year old Joelle. She did this. Oh yeah. And if you look at pictures of me at the time, I look like a little boy. I mean, I was, I was not, no one ever looked at me and said, oh, she's, you know, 13 going on 30. I was like, oh, she's 15 going on nine. So it was, it was devastating. And so, you know, he knew that he had succeeded because he knew I would never say anything because I was the bad guy. And why would I do it? So he went on to abuse other girls in my sophomore year of college. It was, there was a big Roe versus Wade anniversary or something. And I wrote a column in our college paper. I went to UC Santa Barbara about having the abortion. And in the column, I said, the father was one of my high school teachers. And I didn't know at the time, but an explosion (laughs) went off. Yeah. So some of my peers took that article to the school and said, we need to get him out of here because we don't care about Joelle, but there are these other girls. And so he was asked to resign, but he was allowed to write his own talking points. They had a goodbye party for him. Um, And I didn't find out until later. And when I went to the people who were my friends and I said, why didn't you tell me this? And we don't care what happens to you. This has nothing to do with you. So needless to say, I was an emotional wreck for the next seven or eight years. I mean, suicidal ideations, bad relationships, lack of trust. I, I remember sitting, I was having coffee with a friend and she looked me dead in the eye and I'm still friends with her. And she doesn't remember this, but I'll always remember it. And she goes, you're really self-destructive. And I was like, oh, isn't everyone like this? (laughs) It was, and that will always stick with me. And that was, that was a path I had I had paved my path of self-destruction into a superhighway, and I was going to, you know, so suicidal ideations. Then I had a, a short marriage, didn't last long. I sabotaged that. I sabotaged jobs. I wasn't going, and I would go to bed every night with the hope, well, maybe I won't wake up in the morning. And so finally, I'm in my mid-20s, and I'm in this marriage. I'm trapped. I'm just isolated. I, my, my mother by this time is on her way to drinking herself to death. My dad is a mess. And I, I sat there and I was like, you know what? I have a choice here. I can live or I can die. And, and everyone kind of has that choice in their daily life. You know, you can, you know, live or die, but no, seriously, this was a real choice in my life because if I kept on this trajectory, I was going to be dead in a couple of years. And it was a decision-making process that wasn't really based on, gosh, I deserve better. It was a decision process that hit the fighter side of me that said, I'm not going to let the bad guys win. They want me to die. Everybody wants me to die. Everybody wants me to go away. 
And so I just made that decision. I'm going to live and I'm going to get better. And it took a long time, a lot of very small incremental steps. It took medication and therapy and gratitude and positive affirmation. I mean, all that stuff that I used to say, oh, that's stupid and hokey. I'm like, oh, crap, it works. Um, so, and it was, it was a struggle. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's still a struggle because, you know, when I got pregnant with my son, all of a sudden I was grappling with all this shame. And I mean, being pregnant was, you know, I should have been the happiest person on the planet. And instead my husband's like, Joelle, we got to get you help because you're 34 years old. You're supposed to be pregnant. <laughs> you're married. You're supposed to start a family. And I'm like, oh, I'm bad oh it's terrible. And then as I've watched my son get older and watched his peers, because he's 16 now. So he is at the age that I was when I was being abused. And I look at him and if I hadn't done the work I'd done, I'd probably be devastated because I'm very close to many of the girls in his peer group. But since I have now, it's just like this sense of righteous anger. It's like, how dare these people? How dare my parents blame me? Because when my parents found out, they said the same thing. They said, oh, if you kept your legs together, you wouldn't be in this problem. And I, I, was like, I look at my kid. I love him. He's a dope. He can't make those kinds of decisions. I mean, it'd be so easy for an adult to, to just run roughshod over him. And he doesn't have a vulnerable home. He's a nice kid. He has had no trauma. He's just going through life all happy. And, and so I, I realized, and it's, it's, it's a process. It's still a process and I'm still healing. And a big part of my healing is my advocacy because for every bad person I expose and every survivor I help and every document I dig up and every media thing I do, everything like this, if it just helps one person, then there's one less Joelle out there who gets run over by the bus. Well, you're absolutely helping people. There's no doubt about that. And as we all both know, everyone knows who listens to the show, because we talk about it all the time is the, the way to help people is to shine light on all of this, because then it's not secret anymore, because we all know that bad behavior flourishes in, uh, in the shadows. So we're all talking about it and talking about these experiences. And some of it is uncomfortable for some people I know. And frankly, I don't care because it's time. Well, and it's the burden. I mean, I am extraordinarily lucky because I, you know, I went through the healing process and I got into a career that through journalism and public relations that I learned how to expose bad people and how to ask questions and everything else. And then by that time, it's like, I don't give a, I don't care what people say about me. So I'll just going to go forward. A lot of survivors don't have that capability and it's, for too long, the burden of exposing the abuse, the burden of getting justice for the abuse, the burden of all of it has been put on the survivor. Mm -hmm. We never go to a murder victim and say, well, why didn't you say something sooner? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we never, you know, think about, oh gosh, you know, I see a bank robbery. Well, I'm not going to call 911 because, you know, maybe the teller wants it. So <laughs> It's yeah, that's why I'm very adamant because I, I have a skill set. And so in 2001, um, I'll backtrack a little bit, uh, a kid from my uh, neighboring high school. So I went to child predator high school. I later found out my, the guy who, yeah, the guy who abused me, um, was just one of like 13 or 14 people we've exposed just from the 80s. And this is a Catholic high school, right? Of course. Yeah, it was Catholic high school. 
Um, not meaning to bash on Catholic high schools, but oh yeah, they're terrible. Don't send your kid to Catholic high school. So um, he, uh, so this kid who went to a neighboring Catholic high school, but had the same principal I did, who we all knew was a perpetrator. I mean, he had parties at his house all the time that were just for boys, you know, okay. and they'd, they'd watch movies and yeah, weird stuff. So he came forward and had hired because he was suicidal and his parents you know said this is wrong and they hired an attorney and they told the diocese of orange hey we want you to pay for counseling for our kid because we all know that you know father harris did this and the diocese said oh go pound sand and so five years later that case settled for five million dollars and this is in 2001 this is before boston this is before the 2002 dallas charter this is back in the yeah so that that settlement really pissed me off because I'm like, everybody knew, why are you fighting it? I mean, and, and they exposed his medical records that showed that he went to like treatment and the, the perpetrator, all this stuff. And so I, uh, I got mad. And so I wrote a letter to the diocese and they, they took one look at that in my file and said, oh, we had to make her a friend. And I served on their lay review board. And anyone who knows about lay review boards in the Catholic church, they're they're a sham also. So I was on that for six months and then I quit and filed a lawsuit because they tried to tell me that, you know, what I, I just thought I was a victim because I was a girl and, and, you know, you really weren't and so on and so forth. So I filed a lawsuit and it settled two years later, but in that two year period, I became like the person standing out in front of churches, holding signs, standing out in front of schools, holding signs, holding press conferences, passing out leaflets. I mean, I was everything I hated, (laughs) but I realized it was because I was just like, I was was never a big protest person, but all of a sudden here I am because it's like, I'm not invading anyone's space. I'm not throwing soup on artwork. All I'm doing is telling people that, hey, there's a child predator at this church and here's the information and go look it up yourself. So, and because I had the speaking capabilities and the public relations capabilities, I just kind of, you know, I did it. And so two years later, my case settled. And as a part of that settlement, I got all the documents. And this is, this is what's killer. And this is why what you do is so important. So when I came forward to the diocese, like, oh, we have nothing, absolutely nothing. We have no idea that any of this happened to you. And in fact, the woman who talked to me, she was the, their general counsel. I didn't know at the time. She said, I even talked to that vice principal. And she was appalled that you would think that she said something like that, that, that this was love. Because if she knew something, she would totally have done something. So two years later, I get all the documents in my case. And lo and behold, what's in there? Oh, well, he signed a confession saying that he abused me and other girls. She signed a document saying that I disclosed to her and it was backdated. She said this, this document, because it, it was when he was finally like allowed to leave quietly. She filed a backdated document saying that she knew all along and that I had disclosed to her. I mean, it was all right there. There were letters from the school to the diocese. And so I mean, I could only get that through the civil process. And, I, and they're my most powerful tools. They really are. Because without those, unfortunately, I deal with he said, she said. We deal with the stuff like the stupid Weinstein trial. Where they say, oh, it was transactional. No, not transactional. So um, I took those documents and they're on my website. Anyone can get them. And, you know, I didn't get him out of his then job. It t- that took another 18 years. But I got him fired too. 
Yeah, so he had moved on. He got his PhD and started teaching at a small college in Michigan, Adrian College. And I went to them when I filed my lawsuit in 2003. And I said, this is, I'm filing this lawsuit. You need to know. I think he's still a threat. And their lawyer sat with me and said, well, you know, we just think you're a bitter ex-girlfriend who was upset your teacher broke up with you. So, you know, the thing about working, trying to expose something at a college is that every four years you have to start again because the students matriculate four years. So every four years I, you know, and this is eight. So there's, there's a lot of time in here. And man, I would get the nastiest hate mail and that he's the most wonderful teacher we've ever had in our entire lives and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, do you not read the paper? Or by this time, Google? I mean, Google his name. Yeah, it doesn't matter, right? The grooming yeah. is so strong. People have no idea how susceptible we all are to it. Yeah. And so um, the Me Too movement in 2018 finally sealed the deal because I wrote a Me Too letter and I posted it. And my husband, he's so sweet. He's just like, you know, Joelle, I want you to be prepared for that to land in a forest with no one listening. I'm like, I know. But if I don't do it, I went, well, I got like 30,000 shares that first weekend because I just turned off my computer and walked away. <laughs> Monday morning, I'm like, holy smokes. And so I was adopted by a nonprofit in Adrian and they went out and protested in front of the school for a week. Yeah. And they were, they were so good to me. I'm forever grateful to them. Wow. And so cool. And I found out that he was able to keep his job for as long as he had, because he started, he was just a music professor when I started, you know, raising a fuss. By the time he was fired, he was head of the department. And fully tenured, but it was because of the union. He had union protection. So they, they really didn't even fire him. He just, he quietly retired. Interesting. Yeah. The unions are my big, I hate, they are my biggest enemy when it comes to uh, predatory teachers. That is something I, you probably see this perplexed look on my face. Cause that it's, this is very rarely am I given a new thought <laughs> like about this stuff. I'm not you know, about a, a new avenue. And I, I hadn't ever considered that. I've never heard that before. never thought about it, but it, that's something definitely to keep in mind. It is huge. It is a big problem here in California because our teachers unions are extraordinarily powerful, have a lot of money. I have worked on cases. Um, there's one that's currently open in the Fullerton joint high school district. This guy named Charles Ritz, who had been arrested other places for, you know, molesting kids and everything else. He comes and he teaches at um, a high school in inland Orange County, and he is head of the surf team. Now, if you, and you have to really understand the geography and traffic and everything else. Yeah, the Inland but, Empire, really. Yeah, it's not quite the Inland Empire, but it's pretty close. It's like, that's like an hour plus drive. Kids aren't there aren't surfing. They're dirt biking and things like that. So he had the surf team and he basically used the surf team to sexually abuse all these boys. Plus they had foreign exchange students in the house and everything else. Well, I mean, that's honestly, it's perfect because if you're getting a kid who's a little farther inland and like you said, the traffic's so horrible, so it's going to take forever to get back out to the water, then you've got, you've got the time to take them away and isolate them. So yeah, heck oh, yeah. yeah. So he, he, they tried to, people came forward about him for years, but he was the local teachers union rep. And so he was protected. We have cases 
there's a guy right now, there's a case about to be filed against him in Anaheim. And he, and this is our public school teachers, and he went to trial and was acquitted, but other survivors came forward and the union said, well, you don't have enough to fire him. And it's like, how about we investigate? How about, nope, nope, nothing. So it's, it's a big problem. And a law passed, I don't know, five or six years ago here that allowed or that said you destroy teachers' files after seven years. So like, it's like, oh, great. So if I, I can have an accusation every seven years and it disappears. So what was the rationale behind that? Oh, you know, teacher protections. I, that makes no sense. Oh, I know. So yeah. I'm the the public school system is a real mess and it's it's a battle that I can't win on my own, but it's it's a worthy battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and our latest bill that I helped pass, the AB 218, the California Child Victims Act, did apply to public schools. And so that's been been super helpful for a lot of survivors there. So yeah, so I have so since my case settled, you know, so I did get some money from that. And then I also consult with nonprofits. I help attorneys like you and I go places and I expose abuse and survivors call me. I mean, it's it's the, the uh, pandemic toned that down a whole lot. Sure. So I do a lot more on the internet. I'm a lot more behind the scenes, but I work very closely with the media. I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of research. I do things like this. Um, I do a lot of, I've moved a lot more to the prevention side as well, because I find that prevention is far more relevant if you have the exposure side to it. So, so yeah, it's, it's been quite the wild ride. It really has. So, so talking a little bit back about when it was actually going on when you were in high school and it was truly like an open secret where everyone knew. I mean, you literally obviously had reported to the vice president, but everyone knew teachers, administrators, the other kids, other parents, everyone knew. Everyone knew. And it's like, how, how, you know, I would hope to to God that that wouldn't happen today, but certainly nothing well, surprises me. <laughs> so when I said I went to child predator high school, I was not kidding. So the principal is this guy named Michael Harris. Um, and he was at the school, I don't know, 10 or some odd years. And he, well, he might have been booted from him, his position from the latest Child Victims Act coming forward. But he had the most accusations out of any priest in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles or um, the Diocese of Orange, where I'm at. So he was a... I wonder, you know, it's, it's hard to say what all went on behind the scenes in the Catholic Church in those years, you know, with when you've got prolific um, sexual abuse and cover up and moving priests around. And so it makes me wonder, did your abuser come there because that's who the principal was and he knew it would be a safe place for him? I, uh, so this is the, the chicken or the egg discussion we have a lot. And it's, I think that, cause it, it wasn't, cause my perpetrator is not Catholic. So it wasn't like, you know, there would have been that, you know, scuttlebutt, but what Harris did was create an atmosphere of totally blurred boundaries. Kids went to Hawaii with the principal um, when they graduated from senior year. Every year, the principal and the vice principal, this guy named John Marino, would take a very special boy to New York for a week to go see Broadway musicals. And they'd share a room to save money. And the parents would, oh, isn't that sweet? And even my mother was like, dude, that's weird. Um, <laughs> Harris would have movie nights at his house and only boys went. So people are like, oh, what could happen? Only boys are there. Well, 
Come to find out he had a bar, he had a pool, he would, and I know this from firsthand experience. So I was invited on a date by this guy and I was youngish. And my dad's like, I don't know if I want you to go, but I go, no, we're going to father Harris's house to watch movies. And he's like, okay. So I can go and Harris answers the door wearing dolphin shorts. Remember dolphin shorts that were, and, and that's all, that's all he's wearing. And this is, a, and I'm just like, Ooh, you know, first of all, Ew, you're crap. And then he sees me and he puts clothes on. I was the only girl there. And I realized that this sweet guy who invited me didn't, no idea. He, he, he knew oh. that he needed a shield. I was, oh. his, you know, I, I was, I was his Here. protector shield. Yeah. That's not really the same thing, but yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, so that was, and, and he raised millions and millions and millions of dollars. He built Santa Margarita High School, that neighboring high school. He mm. turned modern day into a powerhouse. Now, okay, so it's modern day Catholic high school. So if you know football, they're the number one football team in the, well, the reason that they are is because of Bruce Ronson. Who hired Bruce Ronson? Michael Harris. This is how far back it goes. The wow. hazing, back to Harris's era. All that stuff that's going on. So it was not weird to be behind closed doors. It was not weird to be in the car with a teacher. There was my junior year, a friend of mine and a teacher were going to go to prom together. And the school finally said, well, we don't know if we don't think that's cool. Really? The fact that it got that far? Oh, we're just friends. No, you don't take a teacher to prom as your date. I, I don't even... Like I'm like kind of laughing a little bit just because I'm so horrified. Oh yeah. It's a, it's okay to laugh. If you don't laugh, you're going to cry. And exactly. And what gets me is that the school is still going strong. My people who I'm friends with now, because Facebook, you know, everyone then becomes friends again. And, mm-hmm. and this, the really bad peer group, they have nothing to do with me, but I have people that I know who know what happened to me and everybody else, because there were like 30 cases in 2003. There were, you know, at least 15 perpetrators. There's something like a hundred some odd cases waiting in the wings to be filed under the child victims act. They still send their kids to that school. Like, why are you paying $20,000 for this? When you, they they live in Irvine, which has the best public school system in the nation. I mean, what's wrong with you? (laughs) But I, I keep that to myself because I have too much to outwardly complain about. Well, okay. So let's talk a little bit about that, about the cover up. And I think you already kind of pointed out a big part of it and how these institutions get away with this. And well, first of all, how the perps get away with it. You've got Michael Harris, who's been very valuable to the brand, very valuable to what they're trying to do. And so on that level, I I see that I get that. And I understand that the grooming is strong too, but moving up to how the institutions get away with it. How do they, how do they continue to cover this up? And cause, cause people are still sending their kids there even after they hear all of these horrific things. There, there are a couple of things. Number one, it's denial. Nobody wants to think that that wonderful school or that wonderful parish or whatever could do these horrible things. Cause you know, have you met Joelle? She's okay, but she, you know, she likes to complain a lot or maybe she was just overreacting or, or you know, things like that. So that's number yeah, one. Kind of a pain in the ass though. Oh so. God, that Joelle. Phew. Don't ever put her in your podcast. <laughs> she, so that's the first one denial. The second one is, and, and this is just a Joelle theory, but kids are short-term problems. So Joelle was the, you know, that the abuse was two years. 
the perpetrator, a guy named Thomas Hodgman, it's all public. And his, I put his documents on my website. He was there, but in the after years, he doubled the size of the choir. He took them to Australia. They were planning to do all this other stuff. And, and wow, this is great. The choir had never done anything like this before. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did take them to Australia. Yeah, he did. Um, and so uh, so there's there's that. And the school looks and they say, well, you know, Jamal did have emotional problems. Maybe she's just overreacting. Or, you know, maybe this is just a one-time thing and we can just, just keep it quiet and move on. And, and you see this in all kinds of stuff. It's like, well, don't say anything until we really get to the bottom of it. And so what Modern Day did and all these other schools, they do their internal investigation. Everyone says, oh no, he'd never do that. And then they, they're fine. They go on through with it. Let's look at the grooming process. Who do predators groom? They groom vulnerable kids. How do they do it? They use emotional manipulation, drugs, alcohol, pornography. In my case, you know, a possibility to go to a conservatory, all this other stuff. So when these kids come forward, especially if they're now hooked on drugs or alcohol or they have emotional problems, are people going to believe them? No. They're going to say they're just a few bad apples yep. because if you, and this is the difference between the dynamic between child sexual abuse by someone, you know, and trust and the, like, you know, just grabbing a kid off the street. So you grab the kid off the street and this kid is violated and hurt. No one's going to say, gosh, kid, why were you riding your bike home from school? Even though sometimes they do, but with the, the grooming process and everything else, that kid suddenly is bearing a whole bunch of the blame. So that's another reason like, ah, oh, you know, yeah, Joelle shouldn't have been there. She should have known better. And so it's displacement of the blame from the perpetrator to the kid. It's seeing the kid as a short-term problem. It's the vulnerability of the kids. It's the fact that people think that once this thing gets out, we're going to lose money. We're going to lose donors. We're going to, our reputation is going to be hurt, this and that and the other. I don't want to cause any problems. That's the worst. I don't and so, and, and it's astounding how people are like that. And I'm, I'm a scourge in any club that I join because they're like, well, we don't talk about that. I'm like, yes, we do. And all of a sudden I'm not in the club anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So it's uh, a law. It, there's so many different things and they all work to the benefit of the child predator. Yeah. All it's, it does is enable them to continue to freaking abuse. Oh yeah. Yeah. And with, the internet and social media and everything else now, there are so many different avenues that a predator can take. Kids mm-hmm. are so much more vulnerable. I mean, how many times have we heard about, you know, oh, this sweet girl runs away from home 900 miles away to meet someone she thinks is 17, but is actually like a 40 year old dude who lives in his mother's basement. And it's because these kids are tricked and they think that it's okay. And I mean, we had a, another a big sexting incident and, you know, it's one of the things I, I tell my son, it's like, <laughs> someone asks, it's a 40 year old dude living in his mom's basement. No one wants to, you know, don't take any pictures. And I, I tell this to the girls who's like, just don't do it. But they're like, oh, but I trust him and so on and so forth. And where do you feel safer? Where's the safest place you can be in the whole world? in your bed, on your phone, all that stuff. Yeah. That's a really good point where you think you're, cause you are in that moment you are safe. And I think that it maybe is lost on their non-fully developed 
frontal lobes that you're sending that out to not a safe place, no matter if you think it's a safe person or not. And maybe it's a safe person right now, but that doesn't mean they will be in two weeks. And then your picture's out there forever. Well, and look at all the adults who've been catfished. It is so easy. It's so easy. And so everything is set up really to benefit the predator. And the more that we can take the burden of exposing the abuse off of the survivor, and the more that we can put that blame back where it belongs on the perpetrator, and the more that we can look at the institutions we know, love, and trust and say, we're not going to tolerate this crap anymore. So, I mean, I tell people like, what can I do? I'm like, you know what? Did you send your kid to modern day? Pull your kid out of modern day. Do you donate to the church? Stop donating to the church. Just quit it. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's an interesting dynamic and one that fortunately, because I've been in this so long, I've seen so much change for the better that I know it's possible. I know it is totally possible. So, you know, a lot of people are discouraged, but I am, I'm cautiously optimistic because I know that 90% of people have the ability and the capability of change. I agree. And I was telling everyone, and I was at a conference in New York City speaking a couple weeks ago, and John Manley was talking as well. He talked on a different panel than I did, and he made a comment that I thought was really really great in that and along those same lines of, of, of stuff that I say all the time, which is we are, we're going in the right direction. We are, but we are not there yet. So while I think that we have, have begun, begun the groundwork to get there, we're, we're very far away. And a big important part of it is, you know, this new generation that we're growing. And as you said, we do, we put all of the pressure on the victims. Always. We put the pressure on the kids or any, any kid really. And I know you and I have talked about this, Joelle, how it's like, we do like the bad touch talks at school and stuff. And it's like, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. Absolutely. Our children should understand these things, but quit quit putting the responsibility on them. It needs to be on us. It needs to be on, and we're going to talk about one of your books here in a second, but it needs to be on us as the adults both as parents and as the adults and these youth serving organizations to know all of these red flags and to freaking do something about it. And when you said, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm not sure, or I don't want to cause the problem. I don't care anymore. I just don't care. Like just say something because it's the only way we're going to get this crap to stop. Support for Survivors is sponsored by the law firm Cohen and Malad. Cohen and Malad attorneys have over two decades of experience helping sexual abuse survivors. We work through the civil court process to get justice and compensation that can help pay for resources needed to heal from your trauma and move forward. We are proud of the work we do in giving power to your voice. And now, back to our show. So, you know, John was my attorney, right? I didn't. Yeah. Awesome. yeah John, John was my attorney. He, and I'll, I'll give him a shout out. So when I decided to come forward and, and hire someone, there were, you know, in Southern California, there were really only two people to look at. And I, I called both of them. And the first person called me back and said, you know, I'm a investigator with XYZ law office. And I would need to substantiate what you're saying before you can have an appointment. To which I said, do you know who I am? Because <laughs> that's really what it was. It's like, do you know who I am? I was on the labor review board. I have documents. 
a guy who worked for John Patrick Wall, who's still a very, very good friend of mine, called me when I, he goes, can you be in at four? <laughs> and so I went and I brought in all these documents. I told him everything that, you know, what happened. I went through all the steps and everything else. And I said, you know, I just want to give you this stuff because, you know, I don't really think I have a case. I'm a girl. I'm some that. Yeah. He said, just stop for a minute, Jamal. You are, a, you were a victim of child sexual abuse. What happened to you was not your fault. And I want to tell you something. I want to tell you how sorry I am. That was the first time anyone had ever said that to me. My parents didn't say that to me. My friends never said that to me. Nobody said that to me. And I sat there and I'm like, I don't understand. This does not compute. It it took me like about 12 hours. And I'm like, oh my God, it's not my fault. So it's worse. You know, and you got to point out, like this was 2003. Yeah. And, this is 2002. Um, yeah. In, in like, it's not even the norm now in 2022 for attorneys to be trauma informed, to understand and to be able to treat someone like that. So the fact that he got it in 2002, it was already, you know, putting these practices in place when nobody even knew what these practices, so to speak, were. there wasn't even anything called trauma informed yeah. care training or interviewing then. So how, how remarkable. Yeah. So that, that was really life-changing. And that's why I always tell anyone who's handling these cases on the legal side, it's like, you have no idea the power that you have Mm -hmm. to really change someone's life. And so when I, when someone comes forward to me, the first thing I say, you know, it wasn't your fault. You were just a kid. I'm, or even, you know, even if you're an adult, you were vulnerable. It was not your fault. And I'm so sorry. How can I help? And a lot of times they said, you know what, it's just because you, you said you're sorry and it wasn't my fault. That's all I needed. But yeah, so that, that is extraordinarily powerful. And I think that's what really inspired me to continue in the process because it's, and that's something else that institutions do. They love to minimize. Well, Joel, you really weren't a victim. Oh, Joel, you were 16. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. you know, blah, 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 blah. We've got so. a case right now and it's a, it's not the Catholic church, but it is a church case. And the perpetrator is, uh, he's a youth pastor and he's in prison now, thankfully. But when she first, and she was a vulnerable kid and came from, I think a family, like the parents weren't members of a church. Like this is a child who was lost and who was looking for a family in a home and a safe place. And so she on her own as a 14 year old went to this church and joined it. And he, as a youth pastor, he zeroed in on her right away, of course. And when she finally did tell, and she didn't tell until she was like 18 or 19, when she finally did tell, you know, the comments from, well, first of all, there's absolutely, I'm convinced hundred percent. I know that the head pastor in that church knew what was going on because he had caught them in compromising positions multiple times, even after there were supposed to be protocols in place where this man wasn't supposed to have access to this child. And he still did. And they all knew that he did. And even after all that, when she went to the elders with some of the, the women in the congregation who helped her and one of them, one of the other pastors was like, well, you, you know, it's not all his fault. And I'm like, she's a child. And it's the weaponization of faith, you know, and it's because he was trusted and he had authority. And, and so it's, it's like when I, tell people about what happened to me or, you know, try to expose it. And what I used to get a lot was, well, well, are you a, a woman of God? 
And I'm like, it shouldn't matter if I'm a Satan worshiper. It was still a crime. And we do not, we do not judge the survivor. So it's just the same thing. Well, you know, she was in that room with him. All those same excuses that do nothing but perpetrate more abuse. And yeah, now he's in prison. And I bet, of course, there are still people who are like, well, you know, he was such a nice guy. All the time. All the, all the time. But we, I mean, I could sit and go on and on with all these horror stories. <laughs> and it's just frustrating. Um, let's talk a little bit about prevention efforts. Some of the things that uh, you do. Um, and also, why don't you tell us a little bit about the role that parents play in prevention? Because I think that that's something that a lot of people need to hear more about. Well, I've, I've realized that while the exposure stuff is juicy and gets all the headlines and that's where you get all the stories that people love to hear, it doesn't do a whole lot to keep kids safe. And once I had a kid, I, people would come to me, they're just all panicked. They're like, oh, Jamal, what do I do? And I'm like, it's not that hard. <laughs> um, and it's like, and I, I've worked with thousands of survivors and all of them said all it would have taken was one person to pick up the phone one person to notice something was wrong, one person to tell people about grooming, any of that. And so I started to work on the prevention side and I wrote a book called The Well-Armored Child. And it's, I don't have fancy letters behind my name. You know, I have a, I have a degree in English, but I have common sense skills and 20 years of on the ground in the trenches experience working with experts and survivors to really just give parents easy, simple tools that have nothing to do with the discussion of sex. And that's what's important. We need to separate uh, abuse prevention from sex. And I think that's, that's the biggest, so like growing up in a Catholic school, if you said vagina, you got in trouble. Well, how are you going to be able to disclose sexual abuse if you're like, well, uh, my, uh, my naughty square? I mean, it, it doesn't work. When so, you spoke at the church safety summit a few weeks ago, and I got to listen, I loved that part about it. Cause it's something I thought a lot about, which is how in the world are we going to get people in some of these faith-based organizations to talk about this because of what you just said, that they weren't, you weren't even allowed to say the word vagina. And of course, now we teach, you know, you better be using anatomically correct terms because that is a, a way that will keep your kids safe. Because if the perp thinks that you're actually talking about this stuff with your kids, they're probably not, they're probably going to leave them alone. But I loved that. And how you talked about how we're not talking about sex. That's not what we're here talking about today. You're, I'm not asking you to talk to your kids about sex because you're not. Yeah. And, and that's it. And you brought up another point too, which, and it's so funny because even saying vagina now makes me go, Ooh, I'm so, still uncomfortable. <laughs> still right. Oh yeah. And my kid just like, it rolls off his tongue. I'm like, oh my God, how you, oh, good boy. <laughs> so language, communication, all those things are like the number one thing, because just like you said, if a kid says, oh, that's my vagina, a predator is going to be like, oh no, I'm not. I'm not going anywhere near this kid because this is good. The kid is going to be able to report. He touched my vagina. He wanted to see my vagina. He wanted to do this or that. Whereas the kid who, whose parents say that's called your hoo-ha. Mm -hmm. And then the predator says, Oh, can I see your hoo-ha? Can I touch your hoo-ha? And then the kid says, Oh, hoo-ha, hoo-ha. And then nobody knows. Oh and my God. So How many forensic interviews I've seen where they are like, you know, has anybody ever touched your vagina? And they're like, nope. And then they are like, well, okay, what are, what's this body part called? And it's like, oh, that's my cookie. Okay, well, yeah. has anybody ever touched your cookie? Oh, well, yeah, grandpa, we play the gate, you know? And it's like, you got to know that, guys. You need to be educated about that. Oh, yeah. And like, especially when you call it something like your cookie, I've heard that one too. 
you can talk about it openly in front of a right. whole group of people. And everyone's like, oh, I like cookies. And the yeah, kids oh, are like, is it Oreos are my favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, the, it's totally normalized to the kid. Mm-hmm. And kids, when it comes to talking about, you know, the appropriate, age-appropriate discussions about your body, it was interesting because I kind of did an experiment on my own kid and they will stop you when they ask questions. And they they have a little barrier in their little brains that says, I don't, I don't need to know anymore. <laughs> and so, you know, you watch the, the, we used to watch a lot of like the animal nature shows and there were time I'd fast forward and, and he's like, Hey, that's kind of, and you could kind of see as your kid begins to understand. So you're not going to go and say, you know, it is not okay for an adult to have sexual intercourse with you and blah, blah, blah. No, you go in slowly. You talk to your kid about the biological names of their body parts. Tell them no one touches your body parts. You don't touch anyone else's body parts. There are, there is the exception. Like if you're, there's a doctor and mom's in the room and so on and so forth. But, you know, you, and, and that was a big with telling kids you don't touch other people's parts because then predators were able to, you know, mix that one up. Nobody takes pictures. And, and it became a game for us. We're in the bathtub. What's that? My penis. Who touches it? Nobody. Well, I touch it, but just me. You know, it's like, I do whatever you want, kid. But it became so, it's just like teaching your kid to cross the street. When you teach your kid to cross the street, you don't show them pictures of kids who've been run over by trucks and whose brains are spread all over the highway. No. So we hold hands. We look both ways. We look left, right, and left again. We cross. We follow the crossing guard, everything else. That's all they need to know. That's it. And then, you know, you find age appropriate ways, especially as girls develop, you want to really keep them because of the hormonal surges and everything else. You know, you don't have to go into this, but it's so easy to prevent things. And it's easy to teach your kids to report. People, you know, they go on and on with me like, oh, well, you know, uh, it's my kids in the sixth grade. They're too young. I'm like, are you kidding? Your sixth, your sixth grader's best friend is going to be the one to tell her and she needs to be equipped. And how do you equip them? You tell them, you know, sometimes, because by the sixth grade, they know what, you know, sex is, you know, sometimes adults use sex to hurt kids because adults should never do any of that stuff with kids. And it really hurts the kids. So if someone comes to you, it's okay to talk to mom. You give them, you know, give your kid five safe adults to talk to. You know, you, a spouse, or whatever, five safe people so that if something happens, they have someone to go to. Absolutely. They know how to report. They I've know, seen, they I'm know sorry. stuff. Oh, no. You, ugh, I'm sorry. I, I've seen so many times where I've had kids report to adults who didn't do anything. And then they report to a friend who has a parent who is a warrior. And then that person is the one who really, who shuts it down and gets things going in the way that they should. So I think that that's super important knowing for parents to be teaching their kids to be open to the other kids, like, and to understand what to do when someone tells them to, because I think that a lot of people are doing better about teaching their own children about protecting themselves, but that's a lesson that is lost. Yeah. And another important part of that is that, especially with girls, friend discloses and says, don't tell anyone, please. You're my best friend. You'll keep this secret. And then it's like, no, no, no. I've told the, cause I ha- only have one kid, but via the neighborhood, I have like 9,000. I'm like, okay, we don't keep secrets, no secrets. Now there's a surprise. There are surprises. You know, you don't give away what's underneath the Christmas tree because we will all eventually find out what that is, but there are no secrets. And if someone asks you to keep a secret, 
that means they're asking you to carry a lot of pain and that's not your pain to carry. So come, come to mom, go to your five trusted adults, tell your friend, thank you for telling me this is not yours to carry alone. I'm going to talk to my mom, my dad, my neighbor, my uncle, who's a police officer. And we're going to, you know, figure this out because, you know, I'm nine and I don't get it. So great. Why don't you talk a little bit too about the importance of technology and all of this? God, and you know, the thing about technology is that we can do this podcast right now and I could talk about the latest, greatest thing and it'll be outdated in six months. Mm -hmm. And so I constantly, oh, what app should I use? I'm like, I haven't done research in the past eight months. So whatever I'm going to tell you is useless, Mm -hmm. but there are things you can do. The rule in our house is going to be no smartphones until high school. And that the pandemic kind of changed that. So he got a smartphone in the eighth grade. But before that, he had a flip phone. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Mom, I look, looks like a drug dealer, you know, <laughs> toss away phone. I'm like, that means then you're the coolest kid in school. And, <laughs> and he's like, and texting, A, 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 A. Do you remember those days? Oh, yeah. And it's like, <laughs> big deal. If you don't, you know, that's just, that's the rule because this is mom's house. Who pays the bill? Mom does. Whose phone, whose name is on the insurance? Moms. Whose name is on the contract with the phone company? Moms. And if you, if you make that perfectly clear up front, so like a lot of the kids with sexting, there are, there are legal ways that mom and dad can go to jail if the kid is sexting pictures of themselves and it gets in the wrong hands because it is child pornography. And it's like, so this is, this is my name. They're not going to send you to jail for it until you're 17. And then they will send you to jail for it. And you, you know, so this is my responsibility. I pay for it. It's my phone. So at any time I tell them, you know, fortunately I'm lucky. I have a kid who's not, you know, terribly active on social media. He just watches a lot of YouTube videos about cars, but I tell the parents of really active kids. It's like, you know what? Phones charge downstairs. Phones live downstairs overnight. You, at any time you have the capability of getting on that phone and getting what you want, putting the location services on. So you know where your kid is, if they're a wanderer or they're driving or things like that. So those are things, same thing with the computers. Um, the school issued Chromebooks have really good security, so they'll find whatever. But you know what? If your kid is on a laptop or whatever, you have access at any time. And be open with your kid. It's like, please just don't keep secrets from me. Be rational, be calm. Don't fly off the handle and make your kid a part of the solution and be like, Hey, I really need your help here. I don't understand, or I'm confused, or I'm supposed with older teens. They love that stuff because they want, they want to help. They want it. That's a part of their big growing cycle thing. So it's like, you know, now electronics come in the house and my kid sets it up and he walks me through the whole thing. I'm like, wow, that's so helpful now. And then when other things come up, it's like, so why, why is this going on? Why didn't you tell me I'm, I'm upset, but let's make sure this doesn't happen again. And it's, and you have to use these old school methods with technology, because all the apps in the world, all the monitoring and safety, all that stuff. I mean, Apple tried to put out all these new safety things and then everyone, this, they get outdated before they're even used. True. That's the truth. Um, And I I also think no social media before 13, I say no social, well, before high school, because a lot of 
teachers use social media for stuff and they need to, but I just, I just don't think kids should be on Instagram or any of that stuff when they're little. I just think it, it's not good for their growing self-esteem. I couldn't agree more. And I always say that social media is the devil, just it, 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 it on, in so many ways, but anyway, we're running out of time. I know that. Why don't, can you just briefly talk about a couple of your specific efforts, things that you have done, like zero abuse projects, spot the line, and um, then we'll wrap up. So I've been really lucky to be involved with awesome organizations for a long time. So I'm a vice chair of the board of directors for the zero abuse project. And the Zero Abuse Project is a nonprofit dedicated to the eradication of child abuse in all its forms. And it really focuses on trauma-informed education for anyone involved in the legal system. We have the Jacob Wetterling Center, which focuses on child sexual abuse prevention efforts, as well as aiding families whose children have been abducted. We have the CAST program, which is experiential education in um, colleges and universities that teaches people who will be going out in the field exactly what it's like to do a forensic interview, exactly what it's like to do an investigation. That program is tremendously successful because it's offered to the schools and colleges free of charge. That's awesome. Um, Yeah, we do all kinds of great stuff. We're working on a technology project right now to help survivors of sexual abuse connect. I am super proud. We just got like $5 million in grants this past cycle. So it's, it's pretty awesome. And then I also do work with Spot the Line. I had to step back for a little bit. I'll be coming back on just because other things got in the way. But Spot the Line focuses on technologies that help people prevent exploitation and sex crimes. So they're starting with a sexual harassment meter, and I'm helping them develop a child safety meter that isolates and identifies the sign of grooming. And anyone can just download it. And yeah, so I'm really hoping that that takes off. Uh, but of course, you know, it's, it's something you have to give away. You can't charge people for that. You can't charge people to keep their kids safe. So, um, and so I, I work on that. I, uh, am working on a chapter for a book right now with Brave Healer Productions. I'm working on a couple of my own books. Then I have my own podcast. I have one with Spot the Line, which is on hiatus right now. Um, and then I have another one called Unasked. And, um, so yeah, there's always, always something going on. And then, I do a ton of work with safe hiring solutions because I, you know, you just gotta go straight to the churches. You gotta go straight to the churches. And if the public schools were open to it, I do go straight to public schools mm-hmm. too, because you really have to arm adults to be the first line of defense to prevent child sexual abuse and make sure that what happened to me doesn't happen to any other child. No doubt about that. And I wanna shout out a couple things too. And we'll put all, we'll put links to everything in the show notes. We'll put links to Zero Beast Project, Spot the Line. We'll put a link to Joelle's TED Talk. It's a wildly popular, amazing TED Talk that you did. And it doesn't it have like, how many views is it? It's something outrageous. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I haven't checked recently because, you know, the, then it went, moved over to Vimeo. So yeah, so there are a lot, there are a lot of views. It's so good though. I really highly recommend that. And then of course, Joelle's the author of three different books. The, the first one we've talked about, The Well-Armored Child, The Parent's Guide to Preventing Child Sexual Abuse. Then we have The Compassionate Response, How to Help and Empower the Adult Victim of Child Sexual Abuse. And finally, The Power of Responsibility, which is based, I think, on your TED Talk. Are all of those available on Amazon? Well, yes, but The Compassionate Response, because 
it's a crisis book is free on my website. You can download oh, the PDF. Awesome. Yeah. It's super short. And so it's just like, Chris, what do you, you know, you don't want to wait 36 hours for the book to show up from Amazon and someone's just disclosed to you. So you just want to be able to download it and look at it right away. So that's awesome. That's great. Oh, I love that. Um, and we'll put your, I believe your website is castics.com and we'll mm-hmm. put that on um, the show notes as well. Um, is there anything else, Joelle, that you want to say that you think could be helpful for survivors or essay professionals or loved ones of survivors, anything at all? Well, if we can all work together to take the burden off of the survivors and put it on the perpetrators and the institutions, and if we can all act as a barrier between predators and kids and realize how easy that is, the world would be such a safer place. That is about the best, most concise way I think I've ever heard that put. So true. Ending the show, we always end the show with the same three questions. Question one, what does courage mean to you? Oh, gosh. Um, Courage is the ability to stand up and do what is right, even when the world around you tells you not to. Yes, absolutely. Question two, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Oh, gosh. Marry a rich man, not a poor man, but I didn't take that advice. <laughs> but I love my husband very much. Um, no, I, you know, I, I do know what it is. And this is, it has to go back to courage. So when my son was born, I was really struggling. And I went to see this therapist and, and she goes, just say the words, say the words, I love you. Say the words, I can do this. Say the words, I'm strong. And the feelings will follow. And that's so true. And everything I do, like, you know, the affirmations that I used to think were so dumb and everything else, you say the words over and over again, and the feelings and actions will follow. You will manifest that. Like I used to think, I used to like, okay, I was the same way as you. I'm like, that's so, that's so hokey, but it's true. It really, really is. It It's kind of the same, or maybe it's an evolution of fake it till you make it, but like, it really, really is true. If you, mm-hmm. you put those things into play, they will come true. Finally, question three, what is one question that you wish more people would ask you? Gosh, I, I should have looked these up. Before. <laughs> I wish that more people would say, how can I stop this from happening again? Because the answer is so easy. The answer mm-hmm. is so easy. It is. And I think you're right. I think people don't realize how easy it is because perhaps we would all. Yeah, a little that job. more chocolate. That's another question I like to ask. More. <laughs> I love it. Joel, thank you so much for coming on today. I really, I can't thank you enough. It, it's always amazing to talk to you and hear you talk and, you know, it makes my job really easy because I don't have to do too much because your message is already so poignant and well-versed that you don't need any help from me. So thank you. And I want to hear you sing. I really do. <laughs> you know, I'm not that, it, it, it's a blessing in disguise because I really wasn't that good, but <laughs> it always, it, I, I'm pulled into weddings all the time. So that's pretty cool. Well, you must be pretty decent then, but seriously, I'm in awe of your courage and your candor, you know, the being brave enough to come forward and talk about all those. And you include, you know, some of the things that are, are hard for people to hear. And uh, I think all of it's hard for people to hear, but I think that you get into the nitty gritty and that's so important. And not everyone has the the courage and the audacity to do that. And it's important. And I thank you for that. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. Oh, of course. Anytime. Actually, I have a whole bunch of notes that I was taking as we were talking of other questions I have and we're way over time. So we're probably gonna have to do it again. So it's gonna come down.
want to. I'm more than happy to do part two. I'll be a regular guest. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I like that. And as always, to our listeners, thank you for listening. Please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. And we will see you next time.